собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, everyone. This is part two of a special midweek podcast called Hearing Communism, five short audio pieces by students in my International Communism undergraduate research seminar at the University of Pittsburgh. I wanted to try something different in this class. Instead of having students write the standard research papers, I had them make short audio documentaries. So, in addition to reading and discussing the history of international communism, I taught my five students the basics of audio documentary making, script writing, narration, interviewing, audio editing, and digital recording equipment. This was the first time I've taught such a course, and the audio portion was an experiment. The idea was to not only expand my work in audio, it was also to give students an opportunity to learn something new and think about history and how it's presented in a different way. Things were going swimmingly until the coronavirus hit. The audio equipment and recording studio at the university was no longer available. The students had to make do with what they had to finish their projects. I'm proud to say that I think they did a wonderful job. And to give them some recognition and a wider audience, I'm sharing them with you. If you missed part one, please listen to it so you can hear the first two projects. And here's part two of Hearing Communism. The first piece is The Cry That Echoes Beyond Borders by Rosa Williamson Ray. Rosa graduated from Pitt in English literature, writing, and Russian language. Here's the cry that echoes beyond borders. Hi, my name is Rosa. This podcast is about centering the histories and ongoing struggles of indigenous resistance, namely that of the Zapatistas in Chiapas, Mexico. For the last 26 years, the Zapatista Army of National Liberation has emerged as a formidable force against the Mexican government. In 1994, indigenous and peasant rebels took arms. Now, with autonomous doctors, teachers, currency, and social structure, they hold their ground, unvanquished, despite hostility from the Mexican government. A sign on a highway reads, in Spanish, you are entering Zapatista rebel territory. Here, the people command and the government obeys. This sign marks a departure from economic globalization and the Mexican government. The sign calls upon the synthesis of anarchist, Marxist, and Mayan tradition. The Zapatista uprising came after nearly 500 years of domination and exploitation of indigenous people on Mayan land stolen and desecrated by the Spanish government. After 500 years of finding their resistance met with state repression, the Zapatistas began forming in 1983. 10 years later, when the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, went into effect in 1994, the Zapatista National Liberation Army revolted against the Mexican government and declared that NAFTA meant death to indigenous people. Here is Subcomandante Marcos of the Zapatistas 
speaking out in the 1990s. Nosotros tratamos de delinear un perfil a grandes rasgos de lo que podía ser la figura. We are creating a general profile of what civil Zapatistas could look like, taking the essentials of armed Zapatismo to recognize not taking power, not wanting to hold public office, and the struggle continues for democracy, freedom, and justice, and demanding that the government place itself at the service of society to change the relationship in Mexican society between rulers and the ruled. In insurrection, the Zapatistas did not aim to take control or power over the region. Rather, they sought to reclaim autonomy to organize communities with the freedom to govern themselves. The Zapatistas seek to improve life for their people and to protect themselves from the Mexican government's violent, treasonous breaks in treaty. The Zapatistas seek freedom to let the land protect herself. Did you hear that? The Zapatistas say in a 2012 communique. It is the sound of your world crumbling. It is the sound of ours resurging. Zapatista women have hosted international gatherings for thousands of women from around the world, inspiring change. This is what one woman had to say at the 2008 first gathering of Zapatista women with the women of the world. We ask all women in Mexico and around the world to keep organizing and work for a new world where everyone belongs, so that our sons and daughters may live in a different world. The Zapatistas are not alone in their struggles. From Unistoten to Standing Rock, indigenous land protectors continue centuries of resistance. Indigenous peoples from across North and South America have risen up more powerfully than ever to say, we will never stop defending our people, our traditions, and the land. When in February 2020, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police tried to invade unceded Unistoten territory, we can hear Frida Hudson, Brenda Michelle, and four other indigenous land defenders fighting back. You are trespassing! Get away from that gate! You don't have consent to enter our territory! You are invaders! Back away from that gate! Right now! Propose, don't impose. Convince, don't conquer. Construct a world where many worlds fit. The Zapatistas have asked people struggling around the world not to imitate their resistance, but to be inspired by their resistance, and to find imagination to overthrow regimes and resist by the ways they live. Indigenous people have always been on the front lines of climate action. Climate justice means indigenous sovereignty. As Nicole Gulvich says, Ya basta! The cry that echoes beyond borders. To learn more about the Zapatistas and indigenous resistance, 
visit ezln.org, schoolforchiapas.org, unistoten.camp, standingrock.org, and ienearth.org. Big thanks to Democracy Now!, School for Chiapas, and Invasion for the audio. And special thanks to Mama Jules and Cherie for their ceaseless resistance, creativity, and inspiration. Thank you. That was The Cry That Echoes Beyond Borders by Rosa Williamson Ray. Next up is Communist Ghosts and Abortion Rights, A Nonlinear History by Natalia Acevedo. Natalia is a lawyer from the Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, Colombia. She was selected as a Fulbright Scholar to study bioethics at the University of Pittsburgh, and she holds a master's degree in law from McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Take a listen to Communist Ghosts and Abortion Rights, a Nonlinear History. Inspired by Mothers of Plaza de Mayo, a massive wave of women has been going out the streets of Buenos Aires, shaking a green handkerchief in order to demand the government legal, safe, and free abortion. The rise of the Green Wave and other liberal reforms around LGBTQ and reproductive rights in Latin America have received backlash from right-wing and religious groups and governments. They usually accuse gender and abortion activists of being radical feminists, leftists, and communists. But you may wonder, what does the right to abortion has to do with international communism? In Latin America, abortion activism tends to be related with Castrochavismo, a term used to refer to a dangerous left-wing ideology associated with the polemical figures of Fidel Castro in Cuba and Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Anti-rights groups have framed and disregarded gender-related reforms as Marxist. They use the term gender ideology to refer to a totalitarian ideology around gender and sexuality which is more pernicious than Marxism. In times when gender reforms are being attacked by using the communist ghost, it is important to ask if it is historically accurate to relate abortion reforms with communism. In the 1920s, the Soviet Union became the first place in the world to give women a legal, cost-free opportunity to terminate their pregnancies. Soviet leaders thought that abortion was connected with socioeconomical circumstances and that its rates would decrease as families had better access to food, housing, childcare, and healthcare. However, abortion was criminalized again in 1936 in order to face the population decrease, and the situation of poverty and unwanted pregnancies did not significantly change. I asked Wendy Goldman, a professor of Russian history at Carnegie Mellow that has studied the gender dynamics in the Soviet Union, about abortion in the USSR. 
women resorted to abortion for many reasons. Women who were studying, students who didn't want to have a child, who wanted to take advantage of the new opportunities that had been offered by the revolution. Women who had a decent standard of living. Uh, they had husbands who were working, they were working, but they had too many children already. They didn't want to care for another child. So women had a whole array of reasons that were not necessarily connected with poverty. I will say that while the Soviet Union took a wonderful step in making abortion free and legal and available to women, primarily to women in the cities because the medical infrastructure was not very developed yet in the countryside, while that was a wonderful step for human beings in terms of progress, the thinking around it on the part of both the jurists and of the party leaders was not in sync with the way that women thought about it. So abortion is criminalized in 1936. The criminalization is part of a whole set of changes that occurred under Stalin. Stalin came in in uh, 1929 and assumed the reins of power. And there was a shift away in many, many areas from the earlier very progressive visions. It's interesting that that was done under a Stalinist system. And many people now who are opposed to abortion rights, they equate them with Soviet communism. And yet it was Stalin who took the same kind of position as someone like Bolsonaro. The Soviet Union does make abortion legal again. And I believe that that happens again in the mid-1960s. So abortion does become legal. And unfortunately, there was very little research and very little investment in birth control. So women began actually using abortion as a form of contraception. Contraception was not part of the conversation in the period after the war, uh, partly because the Soviet Union lost 26 million people. And the state at that point really wanted to encourage women to have children. So there was that very different set of attitudes in the period after the war. The Soviet Union no longer had a robust women's movement. By the 1970s and 1980s, the women's movement in the Soviet Union, I'll say, was dead. And what you really see then is the women's movement arising with a lot of energy and enthusiasm in the United States and in Britain and in other countries. That's where you really see the push. And it's an interesting question why it is it arises in certain uh, periods and certain places at certain times. The restriction of abortion is still a topic of debate in many countries. Many have recently passed legislation to restrict abortion. In the United States, different states have taken administrative measures in order to restrict women's access to abortion, which was recognized by Roe v. Wade's Supreme Court decision in 1976. Even during the current coronavirus pandemic, states like Texas have used the crisis to prevent women from accessing this service. This summer, the Supreme Court 
we'll hear a new case on abortion restrictions in Louisiana that could determine the future of abortion in the country. This context has pushed reproductive rights advocates around the world to join Argentina's green wave and mobilize and demand abortion as a right. Crystal is one of these activists who works in Planned Parenthood, making sure women are able to overcome the multiple barriers they have to face to access abortion services. We talk with her about the current struggles of women and the ways in which communism can contribute to this. My name is Crystal Grabowski, and I live in Pennsylvania in the United States, and I am an abortion care worker in Western Pennsylvania. I think it's maybe a big misunderstanding on what abortion is. I think that the stigma does a really good job. The myths have done a really good job at like making abortion seem like one thing when it isn't. Um, I think that people really think it's just like killing a child and they don't have any idea what it's actually like. I think it's like people don't understand how abortions are essential because they don't understand abortions. So they don't know what it's like for somebody to have like three high-risk pregnancies. Like let's say they've had preeclampsia twice before. And like that is really fucking scary. If you are pregnant again and you're like, oh my God, this is like such a huge health risk and I might die. And they nobody ever thinks about that situation here. No one ever thinks about it. So they don't think about pregnancy as a health risk. Stigma and misinformation are really hurting everyone right now because we're seeing people trying to shut down clinics because they think you can delay abortions when you can't. Like, just being wrong and not listening to the medical providers for whatever reason. I don't think that Roe would be overturned, but I do think that we will see in vast gaps in the United States and people having to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles, which is basically Roe will be pointless if that happens. It'll mean nothing. And other than allowing safe havens and then the, the poor, it'll be virtually banned for them. Like somebody in like rural Missouri, they're not going to be able to get anywhere. We're going to see a massive economic impact because of the pandemic. It's probably going to be a depression or maybe they'll call it a recession, but it's going to be bad. So I just think abortion will become like a commodity of people who are lucky and who live in the right places. If everything was nationalized and centralized, then everybody would have access, I would imagine. Because right now, every insurance company is different. It is so confusing to navigate. And I know the legislation that prevents various insurances from covering abortion. I can only see communism enabling access and allowing equitable treatment. It just would be a game changer. Like it, it would just be a guarantee. You just know, you know that you have the care. There's no question. <laughs>
if there actually was real social provisioning through communism, then I don't think you, we would see that the fear that lead a lot of people who would uh, not originally choose abortion to choose abortion. I imagine that would make some of the decision-making processes easier for people. It might lead them to choose to carry a pregnancy to term. Um, and if they wanted to have an abortion, allow them to confidently access that without fear. this feeling that not much has changed in terms of gender inequality. Poor, marginalized women still suffer the most when they cannot access abortion services. International communism has indeed some important lessons for the world about why criminalizing abortion is such a bad idea. So, what can we get out of the history of abortion and communism? For Wendy Goldman, there is a valuable lesson for governments and social movements. I think this is an enormous lesson for us in terms of understanding women and how they react to things. Women know when and when they cannot have a child. They are the best judges of that. I think that the statistics from the Soviet Union show us absolutely clearly that making abortion criminal will not change women's decisions they will resort to whatever they have to, not to have a child. Women need to wage together for themselves. And in times where women's movements are strong, we see advances. And then there is an attempt to kind of push it back. We're going to see a whole new movement of young women getting together to fight for the rights that their mothers won and now are losing. And it's the same thing in every other country. I'm very optimistic because not only have I seen movements produce real social change, but movements have this wonderful way of surprising you. For Crystal, communism can even help us save lives. As somebody who believes very strongly in nationalizing healthcare and nationalizing most services, um, all services, I can only see it being beneficial and saving people's lives. The green wave does not look that it's going to stop anytime soon. Women will keep demanding reproductive justice, and we can only hope that governments will listen and learn from history. The only way to go is legal, safe, and free abortion for all. I want to thank Wendy and Crystal for their time and the Free Music Archive for the really cool music that they have provided. That was Communist Ghosts and Abortion Rights, a Nonlinear History by Natalia Acevedo. The final piece is Fidel Castro, American Villain, African Hero by Philip Flannery. Philip is a rising junior pursuing a history major and a German minor at the University of Pittsburgh. So take a listen to Fidel Castro, American Villain, African Hero. I remember when Fidel Castro died, there was a great deal of discussion about what kind of legacy he left behind. Because this is the United States, 
Many, if not most, news outlets harped on the narrative that he was a brutal socialist dictator on par with Stalin or Mao. However, the reaction I remember most clearly was that of Danny, an Ethiopian classmate of mine. Danny told me that he had a positive view of Castro. He said this was because Castro had sent Cuban troops to help the Angolans preserve their independence against the pariah of the continent, the apartheid regime of South Africa. Most stories about foreign armies in Africa usually end with a new colony being created for exploitation by Europeans. So, Danny was impressed that Fidel had sent troops to help Africans rather than to harm them. To understand the Cuban intervention in Angola, one needs to understand the situation in southern Africa at the time. For this, I spoke to Professor John Stoner from the University of Pittsburgh. He explained that most African countries had gotten their independence in the 1960s, but that this process took longer in southern Africa. Uh, the case in much of Southern Africa was different, um, and that was the result, I think, of two, principally two separate factors, really. Uh, well, no, it's two separate factors. So the first one is the one about which we're speaking more broadly today, which is that the Portuguese government, um, despite efforts to encourage them to decolonize by, among others, the United States government, which uh, recognized the increasingly... Um, challenging and negative optics of European powers continuing to maintain colonies um, in Angola and Mozambique in the case of, of um, Central and Southern Africa. And then, um, and obviously that those didn't come till the mid-1970s is indicative of that. Professor Stoner went on to explain that the other reason decolonization took so long in Southern Africa was that there were two white minority regimes in the region, South Africa and Rhodesia. These countries were both governed by white minority, anti-communist governments, and had formed a military alliance with Portugal, which had colonies in Angola and Mozambique, to counter left-wing movements in the region. Additionally, South Africa had been occupying the territory of Southwest Africa, now known as Namibia, since the end of World War I, which meant most of Southern Africa was still under white rule in 1970. Then, in 1974, a left-wing coup occurred in Portugal, leading to Angola's independence. The most powerful pro-independence group, the MPLA, was a Marxist-Leninist political party. This caused great concern in Pretoria, since they did not want a Soviet ally directly to their north. Additionally, the South Africans were worried that Angola would become a staging ground for SWAPO, the Namibian independence movement. As Professor Stoner explained, the South Africans were not shy about meddling in their neighbors' affairs. It's, it's important to note that the South African government was not shy about ignoring sovereign borders when they were pursuing uh, ANC, uh, anti-South African activists of any kind, right? They, they basically, they killed people in just about every one of what were called the frontline states that immediately surrounded South Africa they, um, they, 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 they assassinated people. They sent military troops to kill people. Um, they invaded as they did in the, in the case of Angola as well. So the South Africans intervened, backing UNITA, an anti-MPLA group, in hopes that they could capture the capital, Luanda, before Independence Day arrived and install a pro-South African puppet regime. Within weeks, UNITA and the South African Defense Force had occupied the southern half of the country and were on the verge of capturing Luanda. That's when Fidel Castro decided to step in. The Cubans had already sent military advisors to help the MPLA, 
but seeing that they were in danger of losing Angola to the South Africans, sent 35,000 infantry in what became known as Operation Carlota, named after the leader of a Cuban slave revolt in 1843. The intervention worked, and the South Africans were forced to withdraw for the time being. The MPLA was in control of the country on November 11, 1975, when the nation finally declared independence as the People's Republic of Angola. The conflict raged on in the form of a proxy war for the next decade and a half. UNITA, still being aided by South Africa, had control of the southeastern province of Kwando Kubango, which shared a border with South Africa. In addition to military support, Cubans provided humanitarian aid to the newly independent nation, including thousands of doctors. At one point, Angola's health system was nearly completely run by Cuban doctors. In 1987, the People's Armed Forces of Liberation of Angola, or FAPLA, advanced into UNITA-held territory to dislodge them from Angolan soil once and for all. However, the South Africans intervened and managed to push the Angolan army back to the small town of Quito Quanavale, which was an important military base. On the verge of losing the entire province to UNITA and the South Africans, the Angolan government asked Cuba to send their support once more, which they did. Castro sent 15,000 troops, along with tanks, aircraft, and artillery, to help his African allies in what became the biggest battle on African soil since World War II. Thanks to help from the Cubans, the Angolans were able to push back several advances from the South Africans before Pretoria finally gave up and retreated. Although they would continue to support UNITA, the South African government made no more major incursions into Angolan territory, and in 1991, withdrew from the country entirely. Additionally, the defeat of the South Africans at Quito Quanavale was a factor in their granting Namibia independence, which had been under South African occupation since 1915. In 1994, six years after Quito Quanavale, apartheid came to an end in South Africa. At a speech commemorating the Cuban Revolution in 1991, Nelson Mandela said, the defeat of the apartheid army was an inspiration to the struggling people in South Africa. The defeat of the racist army at Quito Quanavale has made it possible for me to be here today. Quito Quanavale was a milestone in the history of the struggle for Southern African liberation. When Fidel Castro is brought up in the United States, most of the time, the reactions are negative. However, it's important to remember that, for millions of people on the other side of the Atlantic and around the world, he is a beloved icon, and not without good reason. That was Fidel Castro, American Villain, African Hero, by Philip Flannery. I hope you enjoyed these projects. If you'd like to give the students some comments or feedback, please send me a message on the SRB Podcast contact page at srbpodcast.org, or leave a comment on Twitter or Facebook. I'll be sure to forward it to them. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly.
from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Oh, I'm just a typical American boy from a typical American town. I believe in God and Senator Dodd and I keep an old Castro down. And when it came my time to serve, I knew better dead than red. But when I got to my old draft board, buddy, this is what I said. Sarge, I'm only 18, I got a ruptured spleen and I always carry a purse. I've got eyes like a bat and my feet are flat and my asthma's getting worse. Yes, think of my career, my sweetheart dear, my poor old invalid aunt. Besides, I ain't no fool, I'm a-going to school and I'm a-working in a defense plant. I got a dislocated disc and a racked up back, I'm allergic to flowers and bugs. And when the bombshell hits, I get epileptic fits and I'm addicted to a thousand drugs. I got the weakness woes, I can't touch my toes, I can hardly reach my knees. And if the enemy came close to me, oh, I'd probably start to sneeze. I'm only 18, got a ruptured spleen, and I always carry a purse. I've got eyes like a bat, and my feet are flat, and my asthma's getting worse. Yes, think of my career, my sweetheart dear, my poor old invalid aunt. Besides, I ain't no fool, I'm a-going to school, and I'm a-working in a defense plant. Ooh, I hate showing lie, and I hope he dies. But one thing you gotta see, that someone's gotta go over there, and that someone isn't me. So I wish you well, Sarge, give him hell. Kill me a thousand or so. And if you ever get a war without blood and gore, I'll be the first to go. Yes, I'm only 18, I got a ruptured spleen, and I always carry a purse. I've got eyes like a bat, and my feet are flat, and my asthma's getting worse. Yes, think of my career, my sweetheart dear, my poor old invalid aunt. Besides, I ain't no fool, I'm a-going to school and I'm working in a defense plant.